Hello and welcome to another episode of Rebel City Podcast. This week's guest, uh, following on from the theme that we've been doing for maybe the last few weeks, um, we have uh, Councilman David MacDonald. Um, David MacDonald is the Vice Chair of Glasgow City Council and an SNP Councilman uh, in Glasgow. Um, we spoke to David about a whole sort of load of stuff from uh, what he does, what inspired him um, to get into politics, the work that he does in Glasgow life. Um, we spoke to him about some of the closures, like people's palace and swimming pools. And we also got in about some of the recent guests, um, activism, um, women against capitalism, asked the 700, um, posed a question about why did Glasgow City Council not speak to the women involved and um, we also spoke to him about equal pay victory for women, um, which is a, a a subject that's really close uh, to Matt, as his mum was affected by it. We really wanted to ask uh, David about orange walks and parades, as it's been a hot-button topic in Glasgow the last um, wee while. But unfortunately... Um, as you'll hear in the episode, because of ongoing legal action from the Orange, well, I don't even know if it was from them directly, so I suppose I should not say that um, if I don't know it for fact, but um, with court cases pending and ongoing um, with people that are wanting to put on marches and parades, we were unable to really get into it. So, sorry about that, apologies. It was one of the main subjects that we were really looking forward to getting into with them, but unfortunately we couldn't do that. We spoke about what Glasgow City Council are doing to mitigate Brexit and the impact of Brexit on the citizens of Glasgow, and also as a subject that's close to my heart as somebody that works in retail, I'd ask David what's the plan to keep the high street sort of relevant, but also to try and turn back this trend of turning every city centre into a giant food court or what looks like X Factor auditions. I mean, I, I did feel like a sort of an old guy when I was asking this question, but when I walk down um, Sucky Hall Street, Buchanan Street now, it's almost like you're going to a gig. And I think it puts people off actually coming in and engaging in the city centre and shopping there. And as a retailer, I wanted to pose that question as to what was his thoughts on that. Um, we had a cracking conversation. We got a nice tour of uh, the city chambers, which was incredible. Um, and we can't thank David enough for his hospitality and his openness in the interview. So without further ado, here's the episode. So hello and welcome to another episode of Rebel City Podcast. We are in the Glasgow City Chambers, which is incredible. Aye, beautiful surroundings to do a podcast. I was saying just before we started that I usually take people down to the basement and the flat. So yeah. This is like... This is a bit of an upgrade, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> the only other podcast we've done outside the flat is in 
the shop in Edinburgh and it was like a cupboard. We were like, yeah. So it wasn't lavish, it wasn't like this. Your cool back stuff. office is definitely bigger than Dan's. Well, so, <laughs> this, uh, this week's guest is um, Councilman David McDonald. How's it going, David? Good, thanks, guys. It's good to have you here. I think uh, one of the things we've been trying to do is open this building up because so many Glaswegians have never actually been inside. Uh, well, that's what I was saying to Matt just before we... As we're coming up the stairs. I think this might be the first time I maybe came here in primary school but I'm not too sure. So you walk past it. I know I've, uh, I studied architecture at university and this was the first building that we spoke about because it's marble and all the sort of endangered uh, stones that are used that like, we can't build way anymore. But it, what a building it is, man. It's like, stunning. I've seen an episode of Still Game where they were in City Chambers. I think that's the closest I got. So, uh, <laughs> so, I mean, in the footsteps of like, greatness here. Exactly, exactly. Um, I think the first time that I was, I actually stepped through the doors of the building was uh, when I was elected for the first time. Oh, um, so I think people just assume because you're in politics that you're going to be part of the fabric of kind of buildings like this. But yeah. um, that's that's something that we really want to change and actually open the doors and get people in because oh, yeah. it's been closed off for too long. Mm -hmm. uh, so. so, David, like, who are you? So just first of all, I mean, we, I engaged on Twitter. I think we made a, a conscious decision a couple of months ago to try and engage with some politicians and people in the sort of political spectrum, not just in Glasgow, but wider. Um, obviously we had Mary Black, which was one of our most successful episodes, but I think it is Glaswegians and we're covering loads of sort of local issues that seem to have yep. resonating factors in the wider sort of UK yeah. community and economy that we, we got somebody for the city council and just sat down and had a conversation about um, who they are and what they do. And, like the types of things that we can actually have impacts in in Glasgow. So, do I just tell people like sure. about yourself? So, I've got a couple of different roles. Um, like every other councillor, I represent a local part of the city. So, I represent Pollock in the southwest. Okay. So, that's Priest Hill, Nitz Hill, uh, Crookston, Pollock itself. So, a really mm -hmm. diverse. Yep set of neighbourhoods, lots of different needs and challenges. Um, so that's the that's the day job, representing 40,000 people who live in the communities of Pollock. Um, above that, I am the city convener for culture, vibrancy, and international relations. So it's a really long job title. Vibrancy. Vibrancy is exactly where I went there as well. I was like, how, how, how can you so, be responsible for vibrancy? So vibrancy is a really political word. Right. Um, and it's one of those words that we need to use because it translates politically into other uh, documents that Scottish Government, UK Government and Europe and others use okay. to talk about uh, what makes cities attractive places for people to live, to visit, mm -hmm. uh, that brings events to okay. the city. So it's that whole idea of what makes uh, Glasgow the kind of place that people want to move to and live in. Um, so that's a, really, that's a really exciting part of the job, getting mm -hmm. to do all that. Um, I also, as part of that, I'm the chair of Glasgow Life, which is the city's um, cultural body that looks after all of our museums, concert halls, okay. uh, community centres, libraries, uh, all the big festivals and events that the city runs. Right. So all of that is organised through Glasgow Life. Quite a big umbrella. Yep. All the stuff that comes under the People Make Glasgow banner as well comes under my uh, responsibilities as part of the vibrancy stuff. So those are really big jobs uh, in themselves. And then... I suppose the main title I've got is as deputy leader of the council. So as part of the leadership team working with the council leader on making sure that we are delivering on our manifesto pledges that we were elected on two years ago. Mm -hmm. So all of that 
um, makes, it, makes it quite a busy kind of working week. Um, so yeah. good that we were able to fit you guys in to talk about some of the big issues that you've been covering anyway. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, in terms of, obviously, the, the Glasgow life side of things, um, you know, just to maybe kind of get to it, obviously, you know, maybe be short on time later on. So, um, <clears throat> you know, Glasgow life. So, as we were saying, it's quite a big umbrella. Um, you know, you're, as you say, responsible for your transmats and whatnot. Um, that come through the city, like there's there's also like a number of challenges, and and you know in our sort of local areas, um, one of the, the big concerns have in well the last say year or two have been uh, you know increasing closures and some of the campaigns against you know the closures that people have faced. I know that in my local area or very close to my local area, um, there was recently a big campaign around um, sort of White Hill swimming pool. Is that that fall under the, the sort it of does. Glasgow yeah, life yeah. remit? So I mean. What what are the challenges you're facing here? Like because we're coming out, or we're, we're supposed to be coming out, of, you know, a period of UK wide austerity, um, and obviously a lot of the arguments politically are that these are hamstrung in one respect, but on the other side of the spectrum, there are a lot of people that are saying, well, maybe we're, no, we're still not doing enough with what's available. It is like so in terms of these cuts. I mean, what 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 is your kind of like general opinion on like the need for them or? You know how we combat them. What's the, the, the sort of policy here? So um, I think there is. You've, you've touched on a lot of the big challenges we've got. So budget pressures are always going to be there, um, and as politicians, we're elected to take those difficult decisions. What has happened in the past is that those decisions have been avoided or they've been fudged or communities have been kind of palmed off on a lot of occasions over the last 20, 30 years. We've, we all know probably buildings in our own wards that have been left to just yeah. uh, run down mm -hmm. uh, and they get to the point of closure and the council say, well, it was a terrible building anyway, we had no mm -hmm. other choice but to close it. So that's exactly what we want to avoid. We want to try and do something different. So um, we've maybe been, uh, we've, we've probably been challenged more around some of the facilities around the city than at any point over the last 20 years because mm -hmm. communities have really found their voice yeah. uh, on yeah. some of these the, these issues yeah. and what we've tried to do is say to them we need to have a serious conversa conversation about the quality of buildings uh, in communities so uh, some, some of the pools for example need huge amounts of investments mm -hmm. um, so we need to find that money mm -hmm. uh, we need to try and prioritize that we need to work with communities to understand what do they actually want so um, without naming any particular part of the city, we've got some places where there's maybe five or six city buildings, um, all in varying degrees of dilapidation. Yeah. So we need to have a conversation in communities to say, do you want to have those five or six buildings that are crumbling around you, or would you rather have a conversation around one new facility that brings all of those buildings together onto one site yeah. that's kind of all singing, all dancing, it has all the services, uh, services under one roof. And we've seen some really good examples of that in places like the Bridge and Easterhouse and mm -hmm. Paul Civic Realm and my own ward, mm -hmm. um, where when you bring all of those facilities together, um, it brings it starts to bring the community together. Okay. So we want to have that kind of conversation. And what we've said to communities is that we won't uh, close any facility without having a plan to replace it with something else that's better. Okay. So there's a 20 million pot of money available right now for communities uh, to create new community hubs across mm -hmm. the city. Um, 
And over the next few months, that will start to develop. Local members will be leading that process across the city and working with communities to try and develop what communities actually want. Mm -hmm. And where's that funding coming from? So, that, so that's from the, the council's own uh, budget process. So we set that in February um, earlier this year um, and we made that first £20 million available. So there's work taking place right now as we speak on coming up with a plan for the first uh, three of those community hubs to open across the city. Um, and I think we owe each other in Glasgow the, the seriousness of really taking these, these topics on because yeah. we can't just go on as business as usual with crumbling buildings around us. We do need to make investments to make buildings as suitable for local communities as possible, yeah. that meets as many needs as possible so that we can address the big challenges that we've got around mm -hmm. our, our budgetary pressure. So that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to take serious and long-term uh, decisions that have been avoided for too long uh, mm -hmm. in Glasgow. And sometimes mm -hmm. that doesn't make you politically popular. Um, but I think we've got to kind of grasp yeah. the, the nettle on some of those decisions. I think in terms of that, you know, unpopularity that you're talking about, I think probably, <clears throat> no, I would say it's, um, you know, I'm, I don't find the, the administration particularly unpopular, I've, I've voted for it. But at the same time, I think one of the things as like SNP supporters, we probably need to be a wee bit more wary is just putting independence above everything else and forgetting that sort of local community stuff. And obviously we spoke in recent weeks with a, a women's group at Castle Milk, uh, Women Against Capitalism, uh, and they're a, a sort of local community group, essentially mobilising in the face of cuts and, you know, loss of services. And I think that's something that we're going to see more and more as it continues. Like the big one that I, probably just as an example of what springs to mind about that unpopularity would be um, like the People's Palace in the Winter Garden. I know that was a, a, a fairly sort of sizable kick up in the last sort of year or so. And I think it kind of like bridges that thing you're talking about where we want to protect our heritage as a city because it's important to always, no yeah. matter what sort of political party or whatever we've voted for. But at the same time, I, I feel it's a bit rich to throw something like that on you as a year in the door. Um, and I feel, I feel there's probably a, a fair bit of that going on as well. I mean... Who's historically a Labour council in Glasgow, is that right? Yeah, so for the best part of the last 80 years, it's been one party control. There's a wee period of time when there was a group of Tories that were called the Progressives. They, uh, I think the Tory name was too toxic, so they called themselves like something classic different. Classic liberal to me. Yeah. Yeah. Like speak. So, <laughs> so there's a wee period of time, uh, two or three years, where they were in power, but basically it's been Labour run this city for... Um, generations, as long, mm -hmm. probably as long as any of our families can remember back, there's yeah. been Labour administrations here. And I suppose that's what's been really difficult to take, is some of the kind of the brass neck that we've seen from Labour politicians in the city talking about closures, because mm -hmm. the only facilities that have closed um, in the city, they have been the ones that have closed them. They've closed schools and community centres and community facilities and left communities like mine without any facilities for, mm -hmm. for decades. Mm -hmm. um, so although there's been a lot of publicity and talk around closures, nothing has actually closed other yeah. than the Winter Gardens is closed because of a health and safety issue with, yeah. with the roof. Uh -huh. But uh, over the last two years, not a single facility has closed as a result of any budgetary uh, cuts that have been made. So we've got Labour politicians in the city thrown, out, thrown around uh, a lot of fake news. Mm -hmm. uh, they've had these leaked lists, so-called leaked lists of closures that were going to happen. None of that's happened. Um, all of it is a, a big political game that's really been played yeah. uh, mm -hmm. at the expense of people in communities that mm -hmm. have been really wound up for no reason. Um, so I think that kind of thing sort of bleeds down because that's exactly what the Tories did to the Labour government of like that 2010 time where 
they still, I mean, we're at 2019, we're nine years in since David Cameron and Nick Clegg formed a coalition and they still hark back to Gordon Brown's Labour government and how the, <laughs> yeah. they left us with nothing. And so it's almost like a sort of copy and paste yeah. political strategy. And you can do it, you can do that at any sort of level of politics because it's just a case of just pointing the finger. So, yeah, I think that you're right in saying that it's kind of rich that they do sort of go, well, look at what the SNP's sort of yeah. track record in Glasgow yeah. um, is like a sort of failing uh, SNP as a, as a context of the time they've had use of not really got time to get a track record built. And we've been fairly busy in, in those two years as well because mm -hmm. it, it was a case of not only had we inherited a lot of challenges, yep. um, some mammoth political issues that had to be mm -hmm. um, overcome, but we also had a lot of unknown issues that came along from, you know, fires on Sucky Hall Street and yeah. those kind of big challenges that took yeah. a lot of time. So we've had to do a lot of uh, house cleaning in this place mm -hmm. to try and sort some of those big issues as well as implement our own and manifesto firefighting. and firefighting at the mm -hmm. same time. But I think it is worth just pointing out that, you know, there is just now some work underway around the future of the People's Palace and the Winter's Garden. Mm -hmm. uh, and, I, and I want people to know that we're taking that really seriously. Absolutely. No one, no politician is mad enough in Glasgow to even consider closing uh, the People's Palace, so it's about how we actually look at what the future is mm -hmm. for that building and how we secure it long term. Absolutely. This is one of the things that has jumped out to me in recent days. I think there was um, maybe a Gyle Street, sort of Trongate area. I think there's a, a disputed sort of block of flats that had previously been listed. Um, it's laid dormant for decades, has literally fallen apart at the seams. And then when we take the decision to look at whether or not that should be there, we get, well, that you're getting rid of our heritage. Like, but if we don't maintain and like, care for our heritage on an ongoing basis, then we do a disservice. And like, it's a bit much to be going, well, this is a building that's 20, 30 years derelict. It's literally a danger to its community, but we should now be going above and beyond to say, well, we should have, if it mattered so much to us, we should have maintained these things on an ongoing basis. Mm -hmm. um, so kind of trying to move on a wee bit for that, because. We don't want to be too, you know, coming at you with, with criticism. One of the, the things we want to do is try and get, you know, a bit of balance here, because um, we do sometimes get chinned about that. Um, in terms of victories, um, you've obviously been in a relatively short period of time, as we've talked about the, the sort of wider context. Um, one of the big victories for me, and was a huge benefit to many members of my family, was the, the equal pay victory. Um, I don't know if you can maybe give a bit of context on how that panned out and. Yeah, so um, it's interesting because I think by the end of this month, I think the final payments will be made. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that is a huge testimony to a lot of people, first and foremost, to the women who campaigned uh, for the best part of a decade for that justice. They deserve a huge amount of uh, thanks and appreciation from all of us for yeah. actually standing up for their rights as low paid uh, workers. Um, but you know, the trade unions, the, the council staff and the council leader in particular for the actual effort that's gone into solving something in less than two years mm -hmm. that didn't look as if it was possible to really to solve it in two years. Mm -hmm. uh, the work that's gone into that on all sides is hugely uh, impressive. So by the end of this month, we should have the final payments made uh, to those t uh, thousands of women, uh, hundreds of millions of pounds that's been uh, given in terms of justice. Um, and we're starting, I think, to see some really um, anecdotal evidence. So in, in my ward, speaking to people who have got 
uh, really life-changing sums of money in some cases, um, and how that is improving people's lives, how yep. they're, you know, they're supporting families with mortgage payments or payments on houses, mm-hmm. once-in-a-lifetime holidays, new sofas, whatever it might be. We're, yeah. st- we're starting to see a real impact on people's lives, which... Uh, My folks have gutted their entire house yeah. <laughs> We're saying it's the, it's like the, I think the biggest single act of wealth redistribution in the history of the city, really, because it's money, yeah. h- huge amounts of money going to some of the um, lowest paid workers in the city, and so much of it has been spent locally yeah. as well. And mm-hmm. I don't think we'd really factored in the boost that it's going to have on, on the, the, local, the local economy. Local economy. Mm-hmm. Um, Where did we did that come out of like the council budget as well? Was that something that came out of like a sort of a wider budget? Or? So so the so the money. Um, is too vast for it to have come out of the council's budget because if we had taken the the five hundred million pounds out of the council's budget, then that would more or less wipe out a service like education. That's right. how, that's how much money we're, <laughs> yeah, we're, yeah, we're, talk, we're talking about spending. So we've we've had to work uh, creatively to find ways of getting that money in so that there wouldn't be any impact on frontline services. Mm-hmm. Um, this is this is. I don't know if I'm using the right term, but this is essentially like the, the remortgaging of venues and stuff yeah, like so, that. So it's basically uh, a, a really big mortgage that we've taken out on uh, some buildings uh, in the city. So some, like the Emirates Arena, for example, yeah. uh-huh. um, is part of uh, a number of buildings that have been uh, mortgaged so that we could bring in um, a, si- a sizable payment that then went straight out. Uh, to the women, mm-hmm. we now have a, a like anyone else. We now have a mortgage period that we have to pay that money back, mm-hmm. um, and so we'll be doing that over the next uh, number of years, mm-hmm. uh, and that will have to be factored into our budget discussions as we go forward. So next year's budget in February, all the groups will be asked to put their spending proposals forward, but they'll also have to find where they're going to take that uh, money to to pay the mortgage back. Okay. Um, but ultimately, I think it does. It's less about the money and where it comes from, and it's more about the justice Actually, uh, that, that yeah, has been delivered. Do you think there'll be? Is this something that's Glasgow specific, or will there be a domino effect that happens in places like Edinburgh and Dundee? Is this a, something that because obviously equal pay for women is is a, a almost a global sort of battle that's been um, faced over the years. So. so, so it's primarily going to impact Glasgow more mm-hmm. than anywhere else. There's been some other places. Uh, <clears throat> down south, mainly Birmingham and others that have been impacted. Um, I don't know all Scottish local authorities well enough to know, but I think that it will mainly be Glasgow because Glasgow had a different system of how it paid women from other local authorities. So almost every local authority has the same scheme. Glasgow, for political reasons, opted to have a different scheme um, that paid men more than women. Mm -hmm. And you can get into political discussions there about um, links with the Labour Party and trade unions and Mm -hmm. things like that. Um, But Ultimately, this this is this this was a political decision that was taken um, about twelve to fifteen years yeah. ago, um, and probably at the time no one could have saw the the ramifications of what it was going to mean. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a lesson for us to always be thinking about ten, fifteen years into the future when we are taking decisions. So we've been working just now through uh, a new job evaluation scheme. So mm-hmm. there will be a new paying grading benefits that's coming in. So we're mm-hmm. working with the trade unions on that just now. And that'll go through uh, over the next few months. So there'll be a brand new scheme in place in Glasgow, which would mean that in the future, we won't find ourselves back in this sort of situation again. Mm-hmm. We sat down with um, a bunch of the women from like Ask the 700. I think this is quite a relevant sort of jumping off point if we're speaking about equal pay for women in trade unions that, um, Glasgow City Council are potentially are looking at 
bringing in sort of licensing for strip clubs primarily, I think. that uh, SEVs, sorry. Yeah. Um, and when we were speaking to the, the women in this area, it almost seemed, and we've been out and seen them campaigning in Buchanan Street on like, Saturday afternoon, that um, there almost seems to be like a sort of moral crusade to try and... I mean, I'd seen a tweet for Joanne Lament. Am I saying her name right? Um, I think we're close that enough. was so saying that, MSP, yeah, yeah. Labour MSP, that the idea behind this is to help vulnerable women um, in this area. There was mention of trafficking, people trafficking and stuff. And for the, the engagement that we've had, I mean, we, we interviewed six of the women involved and the, the, the main prominent women involved in the campaign. Almost seems that they don't see the point of what's happening. Um, do you are you involved in that in any way, or do you um, not? So not directly. So uh-huh. um, so what, what's happened is the Scottish government have given local authorities new powers over licensing for uh, what what are, what are termed sexual entertainment venues. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a consultation currently underway. I think yep. it, ends, yep. it ends in like ends, three days or four. It days ends very soon, well. um, and that has been extended to allow as many people as possible to take part in that consultation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think everybody accepts that councils have the right and the ability to go and to licence various venues. So, yeah. so hot food takeaway shops get licences, mm-hmm. pubs and bars Absolutely. get licences, yeah. even gyms and other places get licences as well. And as f- I might be wrong, but as far as I know, I think the, the Ask the 700 uh, campaigners aren't against the idea of licensing. Exactly. I think, I think yeah, they yeah. support um, having a licence in place. Mm-hmm. Um, I think their issue is more around the potential around the number yeah. of licences. Uh-huh. I think um, the, the idea was, or for as far as we've heard, that the beginning would be zero, um, and then there would be a ninety-day potential ninety-day application, which would, in the city of Glasgow, put seven hundred women out of work for ninety days, but up potentially yeah. three months. I mean, whether or not it ended up like that, who's to say? But I think that the reason that the campaign is there is because they see this and they're afraid that it will be the full 90 days. Mm-hmm. And for the women that we've engaged with, it, they wouldn't be able to survive. Yeah, a lot of the criticisms that are being put out there in the public domain, they're saying sort of time and time again, like this is no our experience, like the clubs are safe, you know, the venues are safe, the girls are safe, you know, they're well paid, they're fits in their work-life balance. Like, and I was, I don't know if you've read the consultation, we both obviously filled it out as part of sort of working with the girls. Um, a lot of the questions, I don't know, man, they felt a bit felt a bit loaded in a lot of respects because I think they were asking you to give an opinion, so you know, give an opinion on what you think about X, but then they're not taking into account the fact that X isn't actually happening. Mm-hmm. So they, they, it was almost asking you to kind of like gain an opinion on something that the people in that industry are telling us isn't really the case. So I'm, I'm a bit like, just because we've got the powers to like ask these questions and look at these licences, I don't get if the people in the industry are saying we get it, but we don't really need it. Why we wouldn't just listen to them? Yeah. So uh, I'm I'm going to do. I was trying not to then give your politicians' answer. <laughs> oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. <laughs> but so so all licensing uh, that takes place uh, in the city is quasi judicial. So right. it's not political. It's it's a mixture of politics and and uh, legal legislation and practice. Okay. So right across the road from where we are sitting is the borough court hall, and that's where the licensing committee meets. Mm-hmm. It's all very formal, and the councillors that are on that sit on there uh, independently from their political groupings. Okay. Um, so they will take decisions based on 
uh, facts of law as well as the constitu- uh, as well as the uh, consultation that's underway. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's for those councillors that are on that committee to make the ultimate uh, decision. Mm-hmm. It's not a political decision that comes to be okay. made in the in the city council. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a little bit different from the usual kind of issues that we would deal with, yeah. where the council would take a, a policy position one way or the other. Um, this is a little bit different. So uh, I fully. Uh, expect that there will be sort of hearings and other opportunities for everyone who wants yeah. to make their views to make them known. Mm-hmm. Um, the committee will meet and they'll put forward uh, their recommendations. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got no idea what they'll be, if they'll have uh, an idea in their heads at the minute around the number of licences that they're looking uh, mm-hmm. to issue. Um, but I think nobody is going through this process because they want to make people uh, unemployed or yeah. get people out mm-hmm. of work. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important that Absolutely. Um, pe- people's right to do with their life what they choose um, is something that nobody should uh, try and put, um, stamp their own morals or their own views on others. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that was one of the, the, the things that, yeah, I agree with it as well. I think that was one of the things that when we were working up to the podcast and just after that particular episode, that's what screamed out to me that the people that are in favour of the licensing had almost felt like they had a, a moral backup to their point of view. But the, the yeah. women that we had engaged with, well, like Matt had said, was the things that they're saying that they're trying to protect people from just don't happen. Yeah. I think that, I mean, Certainly I don't... in Glasgow. We're talking about Glasgow right. where it's um, topless only, you're not allowed to touch the girls, all these different things. They've got transgender toilets in the seventh heaven. It's like a uh, safe space. Or, or, sorry, no, equal pay. They're a living wage employer. Um, what kind of impact on the consultation do you think the women themselves joining a trade union, they've joined GMB, what kind of impact yeah. do you think that will have in the consultation? So I think um, it's an interesting development. I think it was quite, seems quite unique. And mm-hmm. I know that um, it gives them an additional um, layer that they maybe wouldn't have had before in terms of being able to communicate directly with politicians in a different way. Um, so I think it's it's a really good move that they've been able to do that to unionise and to show that you know there is power in in workers always coming together to defend their rights mm-hmm. um, and it's now I, I guess up for the the licensing committee and the board uh, members and others to have their to say on it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a history of very strange and odd decisions that come out of licensing because fam- right. famously. Uh, Something like Life of Brian was banned in Glasgow for yeah. <laughs> for years and years. Seriously, uh, by a licensing committee, so you can never be sure what decision they're going to take. <laughs> well, I've never heard of that. The Life of Brian is about as innocuous as it gets. I but I suppose different times, maybe. The sex pistols were banned in Glasgow as well. They were banned pretty much everywhere at one point. Fair <laughs> enough. Um, I mean, in terms of obviously, you know, some of the other topics that we've kind of touched on in seven hundred. We had obviously raised the, you know, and again, not to get into it, but we'd, we'd raised um, the recent episode we did with Jeanette Finlay, and you've obviously asked us that we open court cases in play, we park it to another time, which we're happy to do. Um, so in terms of other subjects that we've been kind of dancing around recently that might be um, related to like, the, the council's purview, um, we've been talking recently with um, Refugee, mm-hmm. as well as um, Glasgow St. Pauli, um, and um, although we've not had them on yet, we're also talking to the guys that um, live in rent. Um, and I know in what, two or three days ago, was there a, was a walk-in? They did a, a, 
in the process of taking direct action on a number of sort of number of levels at different places uh, in relation to the circle evictions and stuff like that. Now, I'm got a pretty basic understanding of this that this is predominantly based off a UK government decision um, to send in a private company to essentially evict up to 300 asylum seekers for properties in Glasgow. Um, now, I'm not really sure where the council comes in on that because, again, I've got a pretty rudimentary understanding. So when I've seen the guys, as much as we're interested to hear from them and want to obviously get as much as we can for them, uh, if and when they sit down with us, I'm, I've got a bit of a disconnect on that point as to if, if there's a UK government decision in play, why are the city chambers being picketed? Yeah, yeah. And, and also, I think, and I, I'll, I'll put my neck out here, was it Paul Sweeney was it tweeting that this is a bigger issue because Glasgow City Council are not rehousing these refugees. So even though there's a UK government-based decision to evict these refugees, the Labour local MPs or MSPs are trying to turn it again, like yeah. we were talking earlier on, and like a sort of political point scoring thing, which I'm, I'm not a fan of, especially if you've got no control over it. Um, mm -hmm. If they're trying to use and a refugee crisis to point, like politically point score. I think particularly on this topic, any party politic and, uh, has no place in this conversation mm -hmm. because um, we are dealing with some of the most um, vulnerable people uh, in the city. Yeah, um, on the planet. Yeah, and I think what Glasgow has done really well over the last 20 years is avoid political fights over asylum seekers and refugees mm -hmm. um, and we have been the only city in Scotland that has been a, yeah. a, a welcoming refuge for people uh, seeking some of the worst conditions imaginable yep. So, and it's transformed the face of the city in so many positive ways um, but the council have its hands tied currently over the situation around uh, evictions so our, our starting position is there should be no evictions we're yep. against evictions uh, we think the Home Office uh, have to come and meet with us as much as possible so we can resolve this issue without anybody being evicted from their home. They are our fellow Glaswegians, that is our starting point, and we want to do everything we can to protect them. Mm -hmm. um, but legally, we do not have the powers to say to our staff, go and break the law. Um, I, I can't say to a member of council staff, put your own uh, freedom in jeopardy by going and taking action, which is... Uh, contrary to the laws of the land that we live in. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it would be unreasonable for us to do that. Um, what we will do is take every action that we can within the powers that we've got. Um, but for when the UK government make a decision to say that someone is no longer um, entitled to stay in the country and they're no longer entitled to public support, um, we simply can't go and change that law as much as we disagree with it and as much as we want to change it and challenge mm -hmm. it. Uh, and we do that behind closed doors uh, every day. Colleagues in here, uh, both politicians and council staff, are, are fighting the case for, for Glasgow's refugee and asylum seeker population. Uh, and we'll continue to do that. And I've got sympathy for the position of uh, organisations like Living Rent and others because yeah. they're trying to do the best by their neighbours. Totally get that. Yeah. Um, and that's what we want to do as well. Um, and understand, you know, the frustration that they felt that they wanted to come and protest at the city chambers and in George Square. It's a, it is a place for protest, mm -hmm. and yeah. that's fine. Uh, it's not, like Glasgow's not, central place yeah. for protest, really. But let's protest together about the actions that the UK government are taking, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and let's try and work together on finding uh, those solutions. So that's what we want to do. Right. Uh, we want to continue um, the, you know, the, the more than twenty years of good work that we've done to build. Uh, a, a new city. Uh, the diversity of Glasgow yeah. over the last 20 years has changed so much thanks to those incoming populations of refugees and asylum seekers. 
Um, and it's never been political before. Yeah. Um, so let's not make it political now. Yeah. And let's actually work so that's, As the guys from Glasgow Sam Policy is like, no person is illegal. You know what I mean? Like if you're fleeing, you know, a war zone or, you know, persecution or anything, anything of the sort for how you live as a, you know, man, woman, sexuality, whatever it is, like whatever you're fleeing, like, we should absolutely be the place that's got the stores opened and like, when people's lives are at risk, I don't, I, I'm with Paul, I don't really get the politicking on it because I think, kind of like we're heritage in terms of the buildings and the people's palace, like, this is something that is more about what we've all got in common and what separates us and I think it's, you know, a Glasgow that stands up and tries to help these people is, is a Glasgow that I want to be part of. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. See, with the one of the things, I mean, I'm a, I'm a retailer, so one of the things that really interests me, I mean, I think the high street's dying. Mm -hmm. um, but as somebody that, uh, specifically in Glasgow City Centre, but you actually see it, I'm seeing it happening um, kind of across the UK. We're almost like trying to turn the, the, the high street into a kind of like carnival, where if you walk past the Tesco and Sucky Hall Street, you are literally running a gauntlet to pretty much like the St Enoch Centre, uh, either people trying to do a cartwheel in front of you and stop you for charities, um, sign you up to gas and electricity. Like, then when you go on to Buchanan Street, it turns into like almost like a Saturday afternoon gig venue where we're not only seeing buskers, but we're seeing like full bands turn up. And I've got to be honest, like I don't really like it. So where do you see, like, I mean, I, I can understand that, that a city council would want to see activity because retail is a, a, dying, a, dying, a dying trade, <laughs> like it is a dying trade. But also I think that for me personally, the, the, the retail trade that is there has been hampered by the fact that people don't really want to come to the city centre anymore because it is, like, like I said, it feels like you're running a gauntlet. And if you go to Silverburn, you don't get that same, or Brayhead, you don't get that same level of like, stimulation that's happening like left, right and centre. But where do you see like Glasgow's high street like going? Do you see it being more a... I know that um, from my own experience being there, things like Amsterdam have turned their shops into like, galleries and it's more about art and mm -hmm. creativity and less about shopping because their high streets died. Do you think Glasgow's going to go the same way or does the council have plans to try and sort of boost numbers that are actually coming in and shopping? Because it feels like a massive, not only just the gauntlet sort of what's going on here, it feels like a massive food court. There's yeah. more Costa coffees and Starbucks and the city centre than anything else. And again, I, I'm being selfish here because I'm a, I'm a, a store manager for retail and mm -hmm. I just see my footfall going down and down and down. But is there a plan in place like what's happening there? Okay, so I've, I've, I've spoken to you about so vibrancy so already. <laughs> but, so let me raise you from uh, vibrancy to another political buzz phrase around stickability. Okay. Which mm. is, so what, new one. So if you bring people into the city, what's going to make them stay and stick here mm -hmm. and, and go and shop here rather mm -hmm. than go to Silverburn or the fort or yeah. um, other shopping venues out with the city boundary? Um, so we, need, I think we need to have as an offer that uh, is attractive to as many people as possible. So mm -hmm. for every person um, that maybe complains about the buskers, there'll be another person that thinks it's great. That loves uh, that. It's different. Mm -hmm. And so it's about having, trying to find a balance between um, 
the overstimulation maybe that goes on yeah. in the high street um, and not forgetting its crucial role uh, as a retail centre. So Glasgow remains still the UK's second retail uh, hub after London. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we still we see new uh, stores and new shops still choosing to locate uh, in high street locations, mm -hmm. um, despite all of the challenges that are there and that exist from out of town retail and uh, online shopping. Mm -hmm. um, so we've got to do more of that and we've got to continue to find new ways of attracting new brands into the city as well. Um, what we can do in terms of the, the powers and the facilities and the uh, buildings that we own um, is to try and do some of the things that you've highlighted that, that they're doing in other cities. So there's a little test site at the moment down at Salt Market uh, where a number of vacant units that have been vacant for 20 years okay. or more um, have been refurbished, mm -hmm. um, all nicely painted in nice new bright colours, um, and they've been given over to a, a number of creative industries organisations. So, so like the sewings, one of them's a sewing there's, 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 there's a few different ones yeah. uh, that are opening. So there's a gallery opening uh, next week, uh, Sogo Gallery is going mm -hmm. to be opening down there, but there's a few others uh, around creative industries, um, and using that as a starting point for people to maybe start their own business and then maybe see can they grow something bigger uh, from that. So they're in there rent free for a year uh, to try and see how do we grow something different. So we're testing that down uh, at Soul, Mar Soul mm -hmm. Market just now and then looking okay. to actually run that project up the, the actual high street yeah. uh, of right. Glasgow itself. Mm -hmm. Obviously um, like Buchanan Street's a beautiful shopping district. Um, yeah. um, I don't think, I mean, I know that I, I just spent like probably two minutes whinging and moaning about like I, I understand it, I get it. When you turn onto Sucky Hall Street, the High Street, and that bit down after the Sydney Centre or Gill Street, it has empty units, yeah. homeless people, absolutely nothing against homeless people whatsoever. But it's almost like the the, the gentrified Buchanan Street. That's nice, and but then you turn the corner and it's just horribleness, especially mm -hmm. when you go up past. And obviously, you can't blame a city council for Vicky's going on fire, or the art school going on fire. Some people that, tried to blame. Yeah, us, so yeah. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. But um, there's nothing that you can do about yeah. that. But is is there any specific plans for? I mean, obviously, we've got the salt market, and then we're going to move that. What about that bit at Sucky Hall Street, which traditionally was the second yeah. um, shopping district in Glasgow, but now is really? I mean, to put it politely, it's a shithole really up at that bit. So, so there is a. There's a project across the city centre just now called Avenues Project, okay. mm -hmm. um, which started uh, in Sucky Hall Street already, but then yeah. with the fires and everything else, that all had to be put uh, to a stop. But it's kick-started again, and they're more or less back on schedule. Uh, and that's to actually change the, the, the actual fabric of the street itself. So there's new trees that have gone in, yeah. there's extra benches, pedestrian areas, cycle lanes, lanes yeah. and actually try to make it much more of a European style avenue. Yeah. Um, so that will continue uh, along uh, Sucky Hill Street. We're also looking at the kind of area at Renfield Street, uh, the, the, and Killermont Street at the back of the concert hall. Um, yeah. So mm -hmm. look at, because there's so many major cultural venues in that bit of the city, and we actually start, if you look at it from above, you've got the Concert Hall, uh, GFT, Theatre Royal, Piping Centre, yeah. 
the art school itself, all in that sort of same bit of the city. Yeah. So we really want to kind of bring a new bit of life uh, to that area. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a whole range of other master plans that are underway at the minute. There's the Broomalaw master plan, looking at the kind of riverside area, but yeah. talking about a new riverside. Which has got a lot of potential down there. So, uh, so a, a, new, a new riverside, a new river park, looking at new residential areas, and I think that's one of the key bits about how mm-hmm. we actually keep the high streets going is... Um, addressing the challenge that we don't have enough people living in, in the, the city, city centre. Center. In the city centre. Yeah. So, so most other European cities have a really large city centre population. Yeah. We have the kind of opposite where people live on the outskirts and travel in. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have to address that. So that means having to find uh, ability for uh, house building in the city centre, which we've not really done it on a scale for a long time. Yeah. Um, so all of these new master plans that are in <clears> place uh, are all starting to address all of those challenges and realising they're all linked together. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're all linked together by that vibrancy world. Yeah, the vibrancy. And what about like things like free parkings or what, like plans for that? Because I know that other cities have done it. I think Glasgow did it at Christmas time or something. It was like free parking on a Sunday so you can come in because I think that that's, that is a, a huge issue for people. I know that when I, I currently live in the city centre, so I'm one of the, the lucky folk that gets to live at sort of Woodlands area, which I love living in the city centre. You can just walk in and out. But previously I lived in Shettleston. And one of the things that did put me off coming into town was finding parking, and it would be like, just go to, go to Brayhead. I mean, it's it's way further out, but it's so much easier to just go and find a parking space in and out, and it's, it's, is there any plans to sort of address that? Um, so I think parking is probably one of those difficult decisions we were talking mm-hmm. about and having to take a serious discussion about it. So, yeah. so you mentioned Am- Amsterdam earlier. They have just uh, announced that they are removing 10,000 parking spaces from the city centre okay. of, of Amsterdam. And that seems to be the way that most cities are going. So okay. I've seen Barcelona, uh, Madrid, uh, Paris and other cities all looking at actually reducing the number of cars that come into the city. Mm-hmm. Um, and similar kind of lines to something like London's congestion charge or whatever. Yeah. And I think, to be honest, um, the the future of the city centre is probably going to be more uh, car-free than more car parking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but to do that, we know that there's challenges around public transport that needs to be improved. Yeah. Um, the, the operating hours of the subway and things like that. All of that needs to be improved before you before take you a big decision. you can start taking away yeah. actual parking spaces. Um, so it's a, it's a challenge that every city needs to face. We need to, we're a Victorian city with you know tens of thousands of cars in and out of the city every day. We just don't really have the space to actually okay. um, meet some of the demands that we've got. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be... Uh, a series of different discussions that need to take place, but I think it's probably going to be less cars than more cars, mm-hmm. even though um, I'm one of those people that finds it really... Where I live, it's really difficult to get in and out of the city uh, as well. Um, and doing this job, if I need to be um, in here and back to Polk and then back in here a couple of times during the course of a day uh, for meetings, it's, there's no other way to do that currently than yeah. without uh, a car. A car or uh, jump on a bus. Yeah, if you can get a bus. If, mm-hmm. if one goes where you want it to go and if it turns up on time and all yeah. the rest of it mm-hmm. um, that was just a really selfish because I, I work in town I'm a retailer I'm just like it's a plan Steve it's a podcast dude. we can ask whatever we want <laughs> um, just on a, on a kind of similar topic um, when it comes to the parking side of things I, I live up on um, well just off Royston Road and there seems to have been talk recently about uh, parking meters going in to the Royston Road area to cover essentially what's perceived as nurses overflow for the Royal. Um, so, I, I mean, I don't know if that's a rumour or whether that's something that's just out there in the ether and people have made up, or is there actual like plans ahead to start metering 
you know, essentially quite, let's be honest with you, like economically deprived areas like Royston Road. Um, it's one that if it, if it was something that was was out there in the ether, I would probably like if there's consultation, but I would find a, a you know object. I don't drive, but I think you know the potential for parking meters in somewhere like Royston Road for the purposes of essentially catching nurses who choose to walk an extra 10 minutes to work in the morning is probably a bit of a shady move. So is there any kind of like light you can shine on that? Um, so I, I know there is parking issues and I think there is uh, public consultation around parking in that bit of the city. Mm -hmm. um, it's not a, an area I know particularly well in terms oh, of right. what, what is actually being discussed. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the local councillors there probably know the ins and outs of what's happening. Um, I don't imagine that any scheme has been put in place because they see it as a, a, an opportunity to make money at a nurses. I don't see that being a. Okay. I don't, cynical, cynical I don't, I don't think that Sorry, there's. Yeah, a, I'm that extremely that's, cynical. <laughs> I don't think that's in our policy uh, handbook. That that's one of the areas that we yeah. focus on. I think there is. Point one target nurses. Uh, no, no, I, I don't think so. Right. I don't think so. But I think there is. Um, a parking consultation or discussion at least happening right. within that community because. Uh, the PFI contract of the car park at the hospital makes it really difficult for yeah. nurses or anybody else to afford to park uh, in there for the course of a day. Something like 800 a year or something like that. Up to. Okay, well, I mean, maybe that's one that I need to actually be more read up on before asking any more questions about. <laughs> yeah. So I'll the, point you to the right person to ask. The last sort of, well, day or two, we've seen quite a lot, and this is sort of outside the spectrum of Glasgow, we've seen quite a lot of sort of what feels to me like sort of Project Fear 2.0 come out of Westminster. The, the, yesterday we seen the, the latest gels figures drop, yeah. um, which on the surface, I mean, Matt was just saying there that he's a cynical person, so am I. So on the surface, I read it and just went, I'm not even going to give any sort of energy or thought to these numbers until I can actually like read something that breaks this down for me because it almost seems like nonsense um, and I've seen a couple of people try and pick them apart but as somebody like who's obviously hugely politically aware like what was your reaction to the numbers do you think that they are absolutely like nonsense or is there some validity to the deficit that Scotland runs at being almost something like 50 I mean, percent these, these deficits the must UK? be Potentially having a knock-on effect on like council budgets and stuff like that. Is that is that the case? Are these linked in any way? So um, every year when the GS figures comes out, we see the same rehearsed arguments on both sides. Mm -hmm. We'll see people on the who are unionists say that this destroys the case for independence, mm -hmm. and we see people on the independent side saying this makes the case for independence. Mm -hmm. um, so. Stats. Interpretations. So, so stats are always open to interpretation and yeah. politicians always use the ones that support their arguments. So yeah. I can say to you the jails are great because they show that for the first time Scotland's economy has uh, uh, reached over £60 billion pounds and this is a really positive... So you could go on that political line but ultimately I don't think anybody really cares. Nobody that I speak to in Priest Hill cares that the jails figures are out. There's, there's other jails figures that they're interested in in mm -hmm. Priest Hills, but uh, yeah. it's, more, it's more to do with the football than anything else. But it's... I've been, so I've been knocking on doors in this city, talking to people about independence mm -hmm. for almost 20 years. Right. And not once has somebody said to me, oh, but see the jails figures? Yeah. What about that? Mm -hmm. um, I just don't think it plays, to be honest. I think people try and make a big thing of it mm -hmm. every time they come out, but... Ultimately, people aren't going to make a decision based on f 
those kind of forecasts because yeah. we've seen financial forecasts come and go and be yeah. some are right, some are wrong, and it is only ever forecasts at the end of the day. Um, and we know that they don't fully take into account all of the aspects of Scotland's economy. Yeah. Mm. And in some cases, they add extra bits in around defence and things yeah, like that. Yeah, I think so. I read somewhere, somebody, and again, maybe no reliable, but we tried and factored in where Scotland was spending something close to like a billion pounds a year more than like. Israel on defence, and again, how reliable that is, I don't know. But again, the notion that it's even an argument that can be made probably shows you how ridiculous the figures can be interpreted. Like, I think in terms of the the politics in it, and as you say, the one for me that I find most annoyed about when it comes to these types of discussions is the conflation between deficit and debt. Mm -hmm. So a lot of politicians are out there, and they know that deficit and debt are not necessarily the same thing, but they also know that a lot of the people that they're talking to don't actually get that and will in their own mind go, Jesus Christ, we're in £13 billion worth of debt. And that's, for me, where that kind of, it becomes quite an annoyance, because as you say, it is a pre-rehearsed year in, year out, both sides, and like, I just, I don't know, I think we should have an, a more honest discussion about it, where we actually say to people, like, we're not in £13 billion worth of debt. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, mm. We're not there every year, it's just that, you know, the way these figures are skewed, it looks as though we imported more than we exported. Yeah. That's it. You know what I mean? Like, what does that tell you about anything? You know what I mean? As other than how much we imported and exported. Yeah. You know what I mean? No, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Bang on with that one. So you've been campaigning for Indy, as you're saying, like for over 20 years. Um, I was talking to somebody at, at the BBC yesterday, but um, surprisingly, I, I won't name him because he He's was... getting on show on me, sorry. Yeah, not really. But um, the BBC Scotland podcast, I don't think that's particularly showbiz, but then I get paid for it, so... <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'll not name the guy because he was being pro indie, and I don't know if that would go down particularly well. He's, uh, I think you've pretty much just outed him in your description him already anyway. How many people are actually on this podcast? <laughs> I can edit this podcast. The first time we edit it. Nah. Um, and, sorry. yeah, I think that... The, the what I was talking to him about was this sort of, and this is very personal, and he kind of half agreed and half sort of went. I'm, I'm not too sure, but there almost feels like within Glasgow, or it, it might just be Scotland and wider that there's been like an awakening of that sort of fake news politicking of things where people are just kind of shutting off to it now and just being like, like whatever. I mean, if I see, um, what's the Tory guy Ross Thompson is that is oh, that his yeah, name? I, the Aberdeen guy. If I see him in the TV, I don't even. I'm just like I, this he guy. Could be explaining the cure for cancer. I mean, I'd be like pure dude. Aye, away. exactly. <laughs> um, do you, Do you think that that's actually a thing, or is that something that I'm just feeling personally? Because like in the wake of 2014, um, it almost feels like so much of the, especially younger people, I mean, I don't consider myself younger now because I'm approaching 40 years old. you keep saying every week. Every week, just every reminding Mark that he's a year ahead of me as well. But it seems like in Scotland, the, the, the engagement in politics has just exploded since that because we had quite a controversial vote. It engaged, people had to get engaged either because it was a massive decision. Um, but when you see people on social media, like they almost seem to be savvy to like politics now. Whereas when you see people speaking in sort of parts of England, they're still kind of referencing Daily Mails, and and you're just kind of like, surely you're past that. But do you think that that is actually a thing that happened, or is it something that I'm feeling in my echo chamber of like my social media and um, my friends type thing? 
Um, so I think I think it's probably a bit of both. I think there is always a bit of echo chamber stuff, and if you're if you're only ever having political discussions in the Twitter bubble, then you yeah. might get that sense. Mm -hmm. But my job exists outside of Twitter as well as it does on Twitter. You sure? Um, <laughs> uh, so actually being at community meetings um, and. Uh, and out doing shopping or other places, people do want to speak about politics, which they didn't want to do before. Yeah. And they want to speak about the the issues and the opportunities that independence presents to them. And so my in my ward in Polk was the largest yes vote uh, in the city. Mm -hmm. um, and what we've seen is a whole generation, mainly uh, primarily young people, but a lot of older people as well, who have become really politicised since 2014. Um, and 2014, I think, really changed a lot of people's um, opinions about what they could do in, in politics because it was less about leave it to the politicians and it was a lot more self-organising, community organising, and a huge amount of communities just taking the campaign and running with it themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and we've seen that across uh, the geographic communities, but we've seen it in communities of interest as well, where people wanted to make the case for independence within their own communities. And mm -hmm. that was, I think, the strongest part of the Yes campaign. And mm -hmm. that's, what I think, where we got the biggest uh, results. And so many people have continued in politics because of that. Mm -hmm. So some of the organisations that we've spoken about today, I think probably you would find some of their roots uh, back in 2014 when people became uh, politicised. So I've got a number of community groups, food banks, uh, community councils and others that are all founded on the back of people being politicised yeah. in communities like mm -hmm. never before. So these people went for the Yes campaign and went back into their communities and went, how can I take this energy and yeah. this enthusiasm and, and actually Even the work. No campaign as well. I mean, people, like, they were passionate on both sides. And I think that even, it, I, don't th I don't actually think it, it's if you were a Yes voter that you woke up to this. I think that even the people on the opposite side of became more politically aware and are more into activism. Do you, is that something that makes your job or the job of a city council harder or like easier? Or is it just nothing? Uh, no, I think I think it's needed. I think the problem in this city is that people have sat back for too long mm -hmm. and allowed yep. the politicians Definitely. to go and make the decisions and not be the ones that actually come and be part of the decision-making process. Yeah. So you guys are saying this is the first time that you've been in the building. One of the things that we did last over the last two years is to host a number of summits on big topics because right. we wanted to hear directly from people that were affected on um, transport, on schools, uh, on cultural issues. We actually invited yep. experts uh, in, the, in the field, uh, people living with issues, idea. in to help us shape the policy and ideas. Mm -hmm. And we need to do more of that. Aye, this is one of the things, again, we, we touched on with um, Women Against Capitalism, was that Glasgow has always been like a, a relatively politically literate population. Like, uh, growing up, I was aware of people being politically conscious all throughout my, my youth, and, you know, now I'm no young anymore, apparently. Um, but, <clears throat> like, I think that's something that, although people have been engaged in the process, I think there's a level of maybe... It sounds like a horrible term to use, but like re-education is required because the people that got engaged got engaged in their trenches in 2014, but the challenges that we face on a day-to-day -day basis at a community and local level are not going to be resolved for the trenches. So when we get people into the political process like these events, I think it's as much about educating people on the political process because they look at their politician and they go, I agree with the six bullet points that you're campaigning on, which means me and you are together. But then when the reality of how that is then implemented, 
once somebody's elected to a council to an MSP position or an MP's position is very much sort of night and day because it's not just a case of somebody walking into a room and going, well, I was elected on these six points, let's go and get these done right now mm -hmm. because that's just not how it works. But then I think that's where people get disconnected and frustrated with the political process is that they don't understand that it's not just about your guy or woman getting in and going, well, my people voted me in based on these points, so let's go do them. You know what I mean? So I think having people in and involved in the process can only be a good thing because engagement is probably great, but engaged citizenry that actually understand how things work is yeah. better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and exactly. So we're doing, as well as that, I think the other big change that's going to be coming over the next couple of years is this whole system around participation and particip participatory budgeting, okay. um, which is where the council is going to start giving money directly to communities and letting them make the decision on what they want to spend that money on. Right. Um, so we've done the first uh, four pilots of that in the right. city. So a million pounds was given to communities to say, for, for long enough you've been complaining about issues in your wards not getting done, mm -hmm. so here's the money, um, what do you want to spend it on? So my ward was one of them, and it was focused on young people, and we had a, a panel of uh, young people, 20 young people, who worked with community organisations all across Park. Um, to spend £200,000 on youth services okay. in a community that hasn't seen £200,000 over... It's spent on youth services probably over the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. So it's really transforming uh, that community based on what people actually mm -hmm. want. So we're going mm -hmm. to be doing far more of that uh, and actually putting money and power uh, back into the hands of the people. And are those trials... Are they ongoing, or is there, have they got results for them or anything like yeah, So the um, three have been completed. The next one's going to be in Park Shields, looking at issues around the BME community there. Okay. Um, so all of that information is probably online somewhere. Somewhere. Um, I can make sure I can send that to you. But I think it's going to come to every community in the city over uh, the next few years. So mm -hmm. it's, it's something to watch out I think for. That's, that is something that will allow people to engage with the process as well as you know the big ideas. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I mean, when I was young, I think every scheme had a community centre and it's just something that over the last sort of 20 years you've just seen just disappear in favour of like a tall cross swimming. Yeah. That was like, when I, when I was like not a teenager, or like a kid, like say eight, nine, ten, you used to go to the community centre on calm time, but then as I was a teenager it was more cross swimming and you went there but then that cost money whereas when you went to the community centre it was almost like somebody's dad ran it you ran a football team didn't cost you any yeah. money like I think it's important and all the people that we are speaking to whether it be Ask the 700 um, Women Against Capitalism Refugee the message seems to be for these people that the way forward is that the, we, we re-establish a community and that we don't go through we don't keep this whole sort of keep yourself to yourself. You need to speak to your yep. neighbours, feel like the same issues that are affecting them are affecting you and share that sort of feeling and that makes everything a bit better. But not only that, you can actually organise and try and get change to happen because I think that the last... I mean, I, I stayed in the Calton for three years and then I stayed in Shelton for five years and I've got to tell you, I did not know the name of one of my neighbours. Mm. And when I was younger, my mum and dad actually had active social relationships with our neighbours, mm. which is just yeah. something that I, th I feel through talking to these people is coming back into the community that people are thinking we need to re-engage. We can need to rebuild the communities, which mm -hmm. is going to be good for that money. Um, so we're kind of like getting towards, yeah, getting just towards getting it. towards the door. Um, so can I wrap up or start the process of wrapping up? Like 
we've kind of touched on, you know, stuff that's within your purview, some of the, you know, initiatives and, and sort of victories. Um, what I just kind of like touch on the future a wee bit, we've had a wee bit of a, a, a brief sort of chat about, you know, prospects at Indy. The woman disaster over, over everybody's head, yeah. you know, the sword of Damocles over Glasgow at the minute is Brexit. Yeah. So, I mean... I don't think there's anybody left that doesn't think it's going to be an absolute shit show. So, are you preparing? How are you preparing? What are you expecting? So, um, it's going to be the scary. It's going to be the scariest Halloween we've seen for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> um, we I've not even thought about that being uh, Halloween. Know. Day before my birthday as well. So I thought we're uh, talking about nice having birthday Halloween parties where it's the last big swally before Brexit, and they're going to just go and get absolutely like wasted. So it's it's. But it's really challenging, it's really difficult. We've been asking the same questions of UK government for the last best part of two years, mm -hmm. and we still don't have answers to a lot of the questions that we need answers to. So just so we do have a Brexit committee. Um, it's got representation by every political party. I think the leaders of the political parties tend to be on it. Mm -hmm. um, and it met this week to get an update on where we are and the work that's been done. Um, and I think... It's important that people know that a plan that planning is in place. Mm -hmm. um, the challenge is we don't still know what we're planning for, so we don't know how far we need to go yet. So there's weekly uh, phone calls that take place between the UK government and every council uh, in the UK, um, and it's a very much a one-way conversation. So there's no ability to ask questions on yeah. that phone call. It's just here's the information that we're giving you and that you, we want you to know. Um, must be incredibly frustrating. Which, yeah, so yeah, it doesn't help us at all, really, mm. um, and it's a, a big challenge. But we've got serious issues that we need to answer um, around. Mm -hmm. uh, so our staff, for example. So we reckon there's probably just under a thousand EU nationals who work for the council. Okay. Um, the, the those are people then that don't have any long term security and we've, we've seen we probably all know anecdotal stories and evidence yeah, of people, people deciding not to go back i was um, one of the celtic podcasters was tweeting he's like, i think he's from norway or something like that and he was tweeting that he was due to go home to whatever he's for like late october and it has like genuine concerns about whether or not he's actually yeah. going to be able to get back into a country that he actually lives in yeah <laughs> I mean, so so we've got about a thousand, roughly about a thousand people in that case who work for the council yeah but nhs will be even more than that yeah, again across the public sector even larger numbers but also private sector and others as well mm -hmm. even the, the lord provost of glasgow of course is swedish um, so she's in that position, so she doesn't wow. even know if she... So that's she's wild, the, that's she's, incredible. She's Glasgow's first citizen, the Queen's representative in Glasgow, but who knows? Uh, she might go home future. to visit her family and not be allowed back into the country. Well, uh, you never know. So that that's there's issues like that that are going to affect how we deliver services mm. that we need to find an answer to. Um, and then there's sort of everyday practical challenges. So we feed tens of thousands of people every week in the city, school kids, yep. pe people in care homes. Yeah. How do we ensure we've got enough food stockpiled for those people? Especially when Glasgow's where, you know, school meals are the predominant meal in a lot of kids' lives. Yeah. yeah. So, that's a big one. so we don't tend to stockpile naturally for that sort of uh, situation. So yep. we need to consider what we do with that. Mm -hmm. We need to consider what we do uh, around fuel. How do we keep the bin lorries on the road, for example? So all of those everyday issues we've been asking for some clarity around for the UK government for two years. I haven't got it. So we're having to make our own plans uh, on that, mm -hmm. and we're doing that in partnership with local authorities uh, across the, the Glasgow region mm -hmm. to try and answer some of those challenges. So do you think it's because they don't know? 
Which is probably, yeah. that's what's coming into my mind, is that they don't know how yeah. so the, the impact's going to be, truly. So, I think, for, for the last two years, there's been uh, a, a UK government who basically thought it was all going to come together at the last minute and everything would work out, it'd be fine, just... Just think happy thoughts and it'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Now, I, don't know. I think they were just expecting it to fall apart at the seams and they're already short the pound, but that's well, just me. One, one <laughs> or the two. I think Theresa May's read the secret and thought, if I just think it, it'll manifest itself. <laughs> exactly. And, and now, um, with uh, Boris Johnson in place, it's 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 that, but high, hyper version of that. Yeah, a stage further where he actually doesn't care. Like, yeah. It's yeah. about... If it's no deal, it's no deal. And if that's the case, then, well, that's what we voted for. And it's the democratic right of the, the yeah. UK government. Got the Theresa mandate. May was clueless, but she was actually trying, whereas Johnson's is clueless and not trying. Mm. Exactly. And so we've got the case where here, so nearly 70% of people in Glasgow voted to remain. Um, so we are making that case to the UK government that we need to continue to try and find a way of keeping this city as open to the outside world as possible. Mm-hmm. In the electoral terms, 70% is... Incredible. Like, yeah. So, I mean, you couldn't have, when they talk about, you know, nationalist mandates and all yeah. the rest of it yeah. in the press, like, you could not have a clearer mandate for Glasgow that Glasgow wants to remain. Exactly. So, when I've finished speaking to you guys, I've got a meeting with uh, people from Berlin, and then I've got a meeting with cultural uh, attaches from governments across Europe. Spare German passports on the go. Well, what I'm going to be saying to them is that Glasgow in particular wants to remain a proud European city. We want to remain a proud city that's open to the world, open mm-hmm. for investment, open for people to come to live and mm-hmm. to visit this city, um, and to make sure that people um, around the world know that what is about to happen through Brexit is not because of people in Glasgow's decision, mm-hmm. but it's a decision that's been foisted on us um, against the democratic will of the people. So local councils, and this is probably just going to be my last question on the topic before we wrap it up. Um, in terms of the EU, so is, is there any means within your power? Because I know obviously the, the council has international relation offices and stuff like that. Um, so there is international, as you say, with Berlin and so on and so forth. Now, Glasgow can't negotiate directly with Berlin because Berlin is part of the EU. But can the authority in Glasgow, for example, negotiate with the EU and make some sort of trade or you know bilateral agreement that would mitigate some of this, or is it going to be through the UK Foreign Office and so on and so forth? So what we're what we're doing um, is working on a partnership around a city by city basis with various cities around Europe, um, and that's some of the work that I'm doing currently. So we've opened up discussions with. Um, several cities across Europe, but also internationally as well, um, on the back of Brexit to say that we are facing some real challenges Mm -hmm. on particular issues, and we'd like to work with X, Y, and Z cities on a partnership basis. So we're working on that just now. We're working on the finer details of what those partnerships will look like. Each one will have thematic kind of areas that we'll want to work on, Mm -hmm. um, on trade, on investment, on jobs, on education, whatever it might be. Um, And we should start to announce some of that over the next few months in the lead-up to Brexit, we should have the first couple of those partnerships, hopefully, uh, agreed. So we're doing what we can as mm-hmm. a city to ensure that we will still have international networks. It won't be at a governmental level, it'll be city-to-city mm-hmm. uh, through those direct uh, relationships. Um, and I think that's the least amount that we can be doing to keep yeah. Uh, yeah. Glasgow working internationally, um, because this is an international city, and... Um, Very we much we so. can't allow that to be diminished by yeah. a sort of Little Britain view of 
uh, an isolationist view of wanting yeah. uh, Britain to kind of sit by itself, mm-hmm. um, isolated for the, for the world, yeah. also that yeah. can have blue passports. <laughs> no. Or a red passport that just doesn't say European Union at the top, proudly displayed by Nigel Farage on Twitter like some fucking moron. But um, even just hearing that, that makes me feel so much better. Just hearing yeah. that there's no just no contingency, but actual active. Like, let's think about what we can do at like a smaller level, at like a local level. And I think if every city council does that, then and. I think that even just hearing you say that, it makes me like, right, cool, there's something being thought about and something being done. Because I think that the, for me, the, the worst part about Brexit almost seems like this sort of ideological um, goal and just we don't care the impact on like, ordinary no. people. I mean, I'm, I'm, in a, I'm in a fairly well-paid job. Like, I'm, I'd cons- I, I don't consider myself, but I'm, I would be considered as middle class. And if I'm feeling this, I do not know what it must be like for somebody that's working on no. like minimum wage or poverty wages. Universal credit. People like the ASDA workers that you see are having to go and protest at ASDA, oh, try no. to get them to work for free or yeah. whatever it might be. And if I'm feeling the fear of Brexit, then these people must be feeling it even more. And just listening to a council member say, this is what we're doing at this level, we're doing all we can, and this is what we're doing, makes me feel better about the whole situation. So hopefully, like, if people, well, we we know that people do listen to the podcast, the people listening, they take some sort of heart for that, and we'll definitely be putting this out in the next couple of weeks, way before scary Halloween, like, (laughs) horror Halloween, I'm going to call it. And I think it is important, because we had a report... Um, by the Fraser of Allender Institute that the City commissioned and it said that up to 80,000 jobs in Glasgow um, are connected to European exports. Um, and that's that about gla- 10% of our population? Yeah. So that's Glasgow alone. Um, that's the impact that we're facing. Um, none of that, though, seems to be of interest to the UK government. So that's why we're having to take that work on ourselves and do it. And while they're sort of fiddling around the edges, we've kind of rolled our sleeves up and uh, got on with the day job, as they say. Aye, well, as they say. That's well, I mean... I think that's probably you get anything else. No, no, I'm like, I'm happy to wrap up and uh, what, plus we're, we're, we're like ten minutes over right, or half eleven time slot. But thanks very much for having us and a beautiful building's like it's been awesome. But just sitting down and engaging with like just two ordinary guys that put out a podcast a few hundred people every week, like it's it's really cool. It's been cool to be here, but no okay. just that, but like I just said there, hearing you speak about stuff and what's actually been done just makes me feel so much better about a couple of the sort of situations that concern me politically anyway. So oh, good. Well, thanks, for, thanks. thanks for coming in and thank not you for uh, highlighting some really important issues in the city because not enough people are doing that. So keep up the good work. Thanks very awesome. much. Awesome, man. Cheers.